Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, joined again this week by Josh Blank, uh, research director of the Texas Politics Project. How are you on this rainy Tuesday morning, Josh? Not to date ourselves too much. I think I'm feeling pretty good. I like the rain, a little change of weather, you know. I mean, I was definitely like one of the people in Austin freezing yesterday, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was like in the 50s yesterday. It was like in the 50s. It was cold. (laughs) Okay. I don't care what you think, where you're from. Well, you know, we we get acclimated, I suppose. So, you know, last week we started by noting that, you know, as the legislature continues to get itself organized, you know, there hadn't been a lot happening. Right. Now, that dynamic continues somewhat this week since, you know, you know, since we recorded last week. But, you know, we've seen more stirring around, shall we say. It's an old friend of mine used to say. And in the legislature and in political circles, and we're beginning to see things gel a bit more. Mm-hmm. We're still not to the, you know, the fat part of the action. But, you know, same time in the last week, we saw a couple of interesting things. One, the unveiling of the the first draft of the budget bills in the House and Senate, which, you know, was foreshadowed in last week's teaser from Lieutenant Governor Patrick about, you know, the budget he had produced. He'd authorized, I believe. He had authorized. The budget he had authorized. That that was the the word I couldn't remember. Yeah. And, you know, and also, you know, in terms of, you know, very inside baseball, though there were a couple of media stories on this because there's not much else to write about if you're on the beat. Uh, And that was the much-anticipated unveiling of committee assignments um, by Lieutenant Governor Patrick again in the Texas Senate. So let's start with the latter, I think. You know, talk a little bit about the committee assignments, but just a little bit in in the sense that in the direct committee assignments, at least at kind of first take, you know, there were not a lot of surprises. There were a few things you could kind of notice, I think. You know, the Lieutenant Governor's current crop of go-to senators, shall we say— you know, we're in charge kind of where you thought they were going to be without a lot of change. Uh, Senator Schwartner uh, still has uh, business and commerce. Uh, Senator Hughes at state affairs. And, of course, Senator Huffman at finance. And, of course, a very busy week for Senator Huffman given the release of the, these budget documents. You know, in terms of the politics of this, probably the thing it's had the highest relative mm-hmm. – Public profile. Houston Democrat John Whitmire gets the you know keeps the chairmanship of the Criminal Justice Committee. He's the only Democrat to get a chair this time, you know. And this became kind of you know the you know the thing that got a lot of attention for its implications in capital circles. Now, you know uh, Senator Whitmire is running for mayor of Houston because the thought of him you know not being in politics seems completely crazy. I don't know. Hard to imagine what he would be doing or what he would want to do with his time. So he's running for mayor of Houston. And so this chairmanship has something of an expires by date on it. And the lieutenant governor straightforwardly said that once the senator exits the Senate one way or the other, he won't appoint any more Democratic chairs. And this will be kind of the 
you know, he hasn't put it quite this starkly, but the slow death of, you know, the much-discussed tradition in Texas, very different from D.C., of uh, there being the minority party in the legislature getting some chairmanships. Very notable during the period of, of you know, monotonic, you know, Republican rule. But it comes a lot amidst a lot of politics around this. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Whitmire, you know, it's fun to describe Senator Whitmire as a unicorn for some reason to me. It just sounds, but <laughs> but he's just not representative. I find that almost, you know, know, kind of disturbing. Um, the no, the, the images of that are a little like. No, it's shocking. It's a little jarring. And that's yeah. why I like it. You know, when I said it out loud, I felt the same way you did. So anyway, <laughs> but but that's right. I mean, there's there's not, this isn't repeat anywhere else. I mean, Whit, Whitmire's been in the Senate since 1985, I believe. You know, I can't remember when he moved. The, the number in my head is that he was elected, is when he was elected to the House. Right. Which was 1972. He moved over to the Senate in the early 80s, yeah, early so- mid 80s. But, you know, has been a fixture in the Texas legislature. You know, he's up there basically, and this is part of his stature in the yeah. Senate, and part of the, frankly, the cover that the lieutenant governor has, even setting aside however you might view Senator Whitmire's politics and how he fits into the tapestry right. here. He is the dean of the Senate, as right. you will hear if you watch, and has been there a long time. You know, I think he is up there in terms of members. It's he, Representative Thompson, and Representative Craddock are the three senior personages in in the legislature writ large, all from, you know, actually, you know, uh, uh, Tom Craddock's been there since actually the late 60s. Right. So. so, you know, his seniority makes him unusual. The fact is, you know, his profile as a Democrat, as a Houston Democrat, you know, yeah. makes him unusual. His profile as a Democrat in Texas over the time period he's covered makes him different. So he doesn't count. But the broader context, of course, is, you know, it's hard not to have this contrast with all the calls emanating, especially from, from the far right of the Republican Party to uh, prohibit. Speaker right. Phelan in the House from appointing any Democratic committee chairs. Yeah, the key context here is, you know, there are calls emanating and have this has been going on for a, a while, although it, it's really sort of notched up in the last year, year or so. Right. During the last session, but certainly in the run-up to this one, you know, lots of calls emanating from GOP state party chair and former House backbencher Matt Rinaldi to end the tradition of awarding the minority party committee chairs in both chambers – you know, this is empowered by an item they put in the primary ballot yeah. that, of course, you know, I think this is a part of this. I mean, this is one of those areas where attitudes are kind of not very deep, but it's pretty bankable that if you put something on the on the primary ballot that says, you know, should it be part of the, you know, Republic, well, the part of policy to not, part of the platform to not have Democrats be chairs, everybody's going to say yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. So this is not really like a thoughtful question. Now, look, people may believe this, but the reality is this emanates, again, from, you know, the party platform, which is developed right. by party activists, you know. And so it is what it is. But I think the main point is to say, you know, it's easy to kind of look at this and say, hey, wait a minute. There, there's such a big deal about the fact that there's going to be, dem- you know, there might be Democratic chairs in right. the House. Why is there no similar call, you know, to say, hey, why is this going to the Senate? Well, number one, Whitmire is very different. Number two, there's no hint of an idea that the Texas Senate is being inhibited from enacting a conservative agenda because John Whitmire is a chair of one committee in the Texas Senate. That's not an issue. Whereas in the House, amongst a much broader sort of political, you know, ongoing multi-session political fight about agenda control, usually, there's this idea that, you know, somehow, or there's there's political profit to be had, at least by some members within the dominant party, to say, hey, look, you know, we would get everything what we wanted, but... Right. 
there are these Democratic chairs, which and, I think is, I think is, you know, yeah. Well, and this is a, a problematic you know, I mean, argument. It's a, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a it's a relatively easy play for Dan Patrick in mm-hmm. terms of the contention, generally between the way that the Senate and the House have sort of interrelated in the last few sessions, mm-hmm. you know, if not even in the big sense historically, but also in terms of the the not good relationship between the speaker and the lieutenant governor. Right. I mean, this is a way of just putting the screws to, to Dade Phelan based on the assumption that, of course, it always takes longer for the, the House to put the committees you mm-hmm. know, together than it does in the Senate. Much more complicated puzzle. I think we talked about that in here a couple of weeks ago. And it just, you know, it just kind of puts the screws to Phelan, who's been pretty clear that he is not going to, you know, not appoint Democratic chairs. What you're left with now is at what point is he going to settle, acknowledge this fight, probably reduce the number of chairs from the last time. And then what is that number? I mean, I you know, there's all kinds of different speculation. It's one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of speculation floating around out there on this. Yeah, so. and I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, at what point, do, you know, does that appeasement actually just kind of make it pointless? You know, in the sense that, like, you know, part of the reason that, you know, feeling can say this is this is important because ultimately it gives, you know, Democratic members more skin in the game. And honestly, it's hard. It's A legislative session is hard, and it's especially hard in the House to get stuff through. And it's especially harder still when people are, outright at war with each other. So there is value to bringing Democrats and making them, you know, giving them, you know, more investment in the process. Having said that, you know, if you say go from, you know, end chairs and say, well, we're going to give you these two committee chairmanships at some point, it's like, well, you may as well just have given nothing. Well, I mean, you know, look, along those lines, I mean, talking about this is just a, you know, it serves as a very useful stocking horse for simply, you know, for the argument that Phelan's not conservative enough, he's not enough of a Republican, et cetera. Again, from a fairly narrow band of, you know, participants in the pro- – direct participants in the process, mm-hmm. you know, despite the fact that, you know, as we've said, you can get this to poll well and, you know. Well, and it relies on an overly simplistic view of how governance actually works in a legislature. Yeah, you know, you know all that said, that you know, I was thinking – as I was thinking about this this morning, and I, I don't – I don't know what I think about this, but, okay. you know, it does make me wonder if – you know, in the big scope of things, you know, we are seeing the beginning of the end of this tradition, right? That, you know, on one hand, it can feel very of the moment for some of the reasons we've talked about, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, this enables, you know, for all, you know, all the politics we've already talked about without recapping it again. But, you know, if you step back, would I be surprised if in a few more sessions down the line, for lack of a better, you know, more precise, say in 10 years, mm-hmm. that this tradition had kind of gone by the wayside, that in other words, Patrick goes, you know, yeah. you don't have any Democratic yeah. chairs in the Senate next time or, you know, right. you know, if, should Patrick follow through with that? And I have no reason to think he won't. And feeling scales down the number in response to this and to the pressure, you know, is it very likely that we see those numbers go back up in the future. I mean, it's not impossible to envision a scenario with a more moderate, you know, or I should no, say more. I can't imagine a it. less conservative just, lieutenant just, governor. But it's you know, it's kind of like you know what we said about the yeah. border security thing. Who is going to be the lieutenant governor or the future speaker that stands up, at least in politics as configured now, particularly yeah. in the Republican Party, and raises their hand and says, "You know what? We need to like go back a little bit. We need to backtrack on this a little bit," and return to a somewhat more cooperative model that's based on, 
you know, more out party chairs. It's just, I, you know, so, you know, it was probably one of the first times that I kind of thought about this in a longer term rather than the politics of the moment and kind of, you know, I mean, I think it's reasonable to think this may very well be the beginning of the end of that. Yeah, I like the way you put that. I mean, if you said, if you, if we're placing bets right now and we said, okay, in 10 years, you know, do you expect the majority party to, to appoint minority, you know, yeah. uh, party chairs or not? And your choice is yes or no, you know, whatever, make the bet, whatever you want to say. Okay, I'm going to go now, yeah. and I would, and it's not even like I have to think about it that much. I mean, it's a pretty safe bet. I mean, in one way or another, whether the state gets more competitive, I mean, one thing to think about is like, so if Democrats eventually capture the majority in the House, are they going to put Republican committee chairs? I highly doubt it. Yeah, right. But the other thing that I think, just to make one, especially more, given how far out that probably is. Yeah, exactly. But I think the other thing that this, you know, to some way, you know, in terms of the politics of the moment, that's interesting to me is and how this interacts with the agenda piece of this is that you know, in an overly simplified view of governing, is look, you know, if Let's say, for example, this is going to be a public education section. You know, session. You're not going to put a Democrat as the chair of the public education committee in the House. Right. It's not happening. If it's not going to be a public, like if it's going to be, you know, we did a bunch of public education stuff last session, and this session we're focused on, you know, let's just say the border and you know public safety. Well, there could be some Democrats that you could select that you could give a public education chair to because it's not a big part of the agenda. And ultimately, what, again, people don't understand is that the speaker does control something else, which is who's going to be the chair of the calendars committee. Right. And what legislation is it going to get through in the There's a lot of other choke points. There's a lot of other choke points. And the other pieces is that, you know, again, the Republican speaker, no matter who the Republican speaker is, no matter what their ideology is, is not appointing a Democratic committee chair who is going to endanger their agenda and yeah, endanger the agenda yeah, of yeah, the majority. Um, yeah, and I so think, that's something yeah. that, like, and that's what I think people, you know, again, I, I understand why it's valuable politically to make a big deal out of this and why, you know, the speaker doesn't want to necessarily walk away from this tradition because the person who benefits from this is really, you know, I think the speaker and the house in some ways in terms of, you know, again, intangible benefits. Right. But again, they're not necessarily actually substantive benefits. And that's well, sort of, I think, where the mix-up is. This idea that Democrats are somehow getting something or Republicans aren't getting what they want because of this thing. But the reality is if Republicans really wanted something that was a big priority for the party, you're not going to see a Democrat chairing the committee that, that legislation goes through. Yeah, I mean, I think the way I would put that is probably, you know, that it probably has less impact on legislative output and the agenda than people think. Yeah. You know, but what's out there is, you know, the internal politics of, you know, particularly in the House, mm -hmm. you know, the the position of the presiding officer vis-a-vis -vis the body, right? Yeah. And so, you know, at this point, one might argue, and I think reasonably convincingly, that Phelan gets a lot of political benefit and political backstop from, you know, having a relationship with at least some Democrats, which has mm -hmm. been the patterned you know, historically, and it's a function of where Patrick is, both institutionally as lieutenant governor, but more specifically where the, you know, where, where Patrick is in the here and now in this Senate, you know, yeah. across which he strides like a colossus. Yeah. Um, you know, what does he need Democratic chairs for? Right. So, well, and, then, you and, know, that, and that's a political, you know, that's in terms of political and positioning as a presiding officer. Yeah. I mean, and just one more observation on this. I mean, I think, you know, what, what prohibits Republic, the Republican majority from enacting 100% of the party platform or 100% of the legislation, besides sort of, you know, some political calculations they may be making on their own, is not Democratic committee chairs. It's the fact that we have a session every two years. There's a limited time frame to actually go and, you know, if we were in a continuous cycle, you just imagine just move ahead, do the next voting bill, do the next abortion bill, so on and so forth. We don't have time for that here. 
And so, but part of what that means is that to the extent that, you know, Democrats are more or less willing to throw sand in the gears kind of actually indirectly prohibit how much the majority can accomplish. And so that's, I think, what is sort of the more sophisticated, you know, sort of understanding that the insiders get that sort of the activists don't understand and say, well, if we just got rid of Democratic committee chairs, everything would be would be right. easy. And it's like, no, actually, because those Democrats would try to make everything as hard as possible because their goal would be to run out the clock from the beginning. Right. You can't, yeah, you have to understand like what the value of those chairmanships and, so it's, and that. Right. So it's not, dynamic, it's, it's not, yeah. it's not like it's a, it's like, well, we could have a hundred percent, but instead we're getting 60%. It's like, no, 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 no. You're getting 60%. You could get 55%. Right. And that's, I think, you know, whether that's the exact thing, I think, but I think that's the kind of calculations that people would make kind about what they get out of this and right. why this is a better approach. But to your point, I don't expect this to last for that much longer either. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's a, an interesting thing right now is kind of where, I mean, you know, again, it's, as always in the session, you're focused on kind of what's in front of you. Right. And it just kind of struck me as like, you know, it's very well maybe the beginning of the end um, right. of that. You know, even given those, but I mean, I, you know, the, we were not going to talk about this this much, but I mean, I think, this is yet another one of those things where patterns of polarization and partisanship mm-hmm. really color this, yeah. you know, and 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 our drive and drive this dynamic. And you know, to be fair, I mean, you mentioned you know the you know the the unpleasantness of twenty twenty one, the willingness of Democrats to walk out in twenty twenty one, to be fair, did catalyze this in some ways. I mean, I there's there's no doubt in my mind that's one of the reasons that. Republican activists see an opportunity here. And it's really the only kind of explanation for that when you look at how successful they were in the agenda last time. Yeah. So, so, you know, the other kind of meaty piece that came up that's, you know, come up in the last couple of weeks is that, you know, or at least last week since we we talked last time, is the release of these draft budget bills that were largely similar and not the first time that we've seen that. You know, and a lot of the coverage did focus on the commonalities in these bills, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the past when money's been tighter, you know, you see a little bit more, I wouldn't even say divergence in the draft budgets, but different prioritization is a little bit more apparent here. Whereas, I mean, what struck me in this, to your point, was, you know, they were so similar, but of course they also, you know, left out a lot of money. Right. And so to my mind, you know, just from a practical standpoint, you know, I saw that as, okay, we we, we largely agree generally, but where we're going to have to really dig in now is on the particulars around where all the requests come in and how they're going to deal with the extra money. Right. And there was a lot, you know, a lot of, you know, there are a couple of good stories that, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of sum this up. Karen Brooks Harper had a good piece in the Tribune, you know, I mean, you know, from 40,000 feet, the House and the Senate bills both include $15 billion in property tax relief, $1.8 billion for state employee pay raises, uh, which we had seen kind of emerging Mm -hmm. recently in some of the, the pronouncements that we've heard. Uh, and then, you know, interestingly, and I guess we'll, we'll come back to this, $4.6 billion for the governor's border security program, you know, for border security spending, including a big chunk of that that goes directly to the governor's office, mm-hmm. you know, per recent practice. That's a slight increase from the sum spending that we saw in the last biennium, a pretty big increase in what was appropriated last right. time originally. And a significantly, you know, just call it a huge increase from, yeah. say, eight years ago. Is that right? astronomical? Is that well, the technical you know, definition? Well, you know, it, they're shooting for the stars here, that's for sure. So, right. you know, I mean, front and center here, you know, we have to say, is, you know, campaign promises of property tax cuts, which were a recurring feature 
of Republican campaigns in the fall, along with border security. And in a real soft spot at the end of the last session. When we, yeah, when we finally right. got to the very end of the last session, that was one area where, you know, among, across the, the voting populace, but also, you know, and, and notably among Republicans, there was a lot less satisfaction with the job that state leaders and legislature did on property taxes versus the other kind of big issues. Right. Really, actually, versus all the other issues, to be honest. And, and as we've seen, you know, as we've talked about on here, you know, a thousand times, you know, over the last few years, you know, as soon as you start scratching at property taxes, you are getting into school finance. So there's also $3.1 billion to buy down local school property taxes. And then the Senate, sort of the Senate budget, it differs in that it has an extra, you know, chunk of money set aside uh, to raise the homestead exemption, right, from 40000 to 70000 which is what has been kind of Governor, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick's sort of pet approach to this. Now, as you kind of, you know, you sort of alluded to the way that this became a thing at the end of last session, you know, in the last session, you know, pretty late, they the legislature passed a, you know, raise a, an increase in the homestead exemption from twenty five to forty thousand. You know, and what we've, you know, the the calculation that was floating around at the time was that this would mean all things being equal, which they never are with property taxes, hundred seventy five dollar or so cut on average for annual property taxes. Now we've polled on this a couple of times. Yeah, turn- you know, in a general kind of sense, you know, kind of devoid of, of or trying to minimize the context, shall we say. Well, you know, it's tough. I mean, you say, what what is the appropriate context, right? And I mean, so to your point, just to, to, the, to the responses to these questions, you know, what we tend to find, you know, not surprisingly, is that when you're talking about a, a, a tax cut, annual tax cut on a property tax bill of, you know, between 125 and let's just say somewhere between 100 and 200 dollars. It does. I don't even think it really matters. You know, you have to remember you're talking about something that actually will be manifest on people's property tax bills over 12 months. So we're really talking about, you know, 10, 10 bucks a month, 15 yeah. bucks a month on, you know, property taxes that, you know, are going up significantly more year over year. And so it's not surprising to find people kind of say, shrug their shoulders at this and say, yeah, this isn't really going to make much of a difference. Now, the other factor here, of course, is the fact that property values fluctuate. And so ultimately, what ends up happening is two things. One, this a dollar figure gets eaten into basically every year in most places if the economy is good and if property values are going up. Right. Now, what the legislature would say is less so than it used to because of limits placed on localities and how much additional revenue they can raise on yeah. existing properties, and that's true. So there has actually been some, some compression of this. But the issue here is that you know there's two sort of things that kind of make this squishy. One, it doesn't have, most people don't notice it. If they do notice it, it's probably unlikely that they're going to think that it affects them that much. It might get erased in the next few years, but the legislature actually still has to pay for it. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I think, you know, it's an interesting play. Obviously, this is going to be one of the major negotiating points. And, you know, as we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, one of the things that's interesting about the budget, about this, about these budget bills, is that it's another. they are another step in us looking at where the horse trading is going to be and what the negotiating points are going to be. You know, and it's interesting, the macroeconomic environment is going to have a very interesting effect on this. On one hand, you and I were talking this morning in another context about, you know, the cooling real estate situation in some places in Texas, whether that sustains itself. And it's very uneven, right? Like Austin's cooled a lot. Dallas is still looking, you know, humming along. So it's it's uneven, you know. And so on one hand, you have that dynamic of, 
in the last couple of cycles where we've talked about property taxes, property values were going nowhere but up. Appraisals yeah. were going nowhere but up. Right. That was kind of unambiguous. And that's important. I mean, at that end of 2021 result, I mean, we right. were in the thick of, you know, just skyrocketing property values. So right. Not- and, and in a kind of, unex- you know, not slightly unanticipated way, we're still kind of processing like what the work from home yeah. shift was, the impact but the reality that was, was, was the it wasn't a change market. in the direction of the trend. It was just an acceleration. Yeah, right, right. It's just, yeah, it, it changed it in, in the nature of it, but not the direction. And then the other thing is inflation, right? And we yeah. don't, you know, obviously we don't know what's going on with that. And the inflation and the impact on the housing market are somewhat linked with a lot of intermediate things, but by interest rates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if anybody knows exactly where interest rates are, I mean, if you watch the financial markets and read the financial press, there's a lot of disagreement over what the pace of that is going to be and a lot of disagreement inside the Federal Reserve. So all of this, which is to say a lot of variables here, we often, you know, we focus a lot on the, you know, as we say, the, the levers that are available to the legislature. Right. The difficulty, the complexity, the property tax cuts that are expensive, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. As you say, you know, once you commit to them, you got to keep paying for them. Well, But there's also a very uncertain macroeconomic context for all of this as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just sort of – I mean, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about here and you talk about it too. Is You know, what's interesting to imagine is, you know, if let's say we do come out of this period of inflation with, you know, an economic contraction and let's say further – the property values, you know, either stay the same or dip a little bit, you know, ultimately the legislature is still responsible for the portion of the prop- of the homestead exemption they've bought out. The funding formulas for school districts still operate based on at weighted average daily attendance numbers, right? And so, you know, do you hit some point where, you know, actually the state's going to have to kick in more because property values have gone down? Right. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, the other thing I also think about, and I don't know the answer to this. I know this is the worst thing on an expert podcast. Like, oh, I don't really know. But I mean, one thing I'm thinking about also is, you know, they cap the the increase, right, in terms of your property value right. for the yeah. purposes of valuations. But if you've been living, you know, one of the major cities over the last couple of years, you know, that's been getting enacted year over year over year. So what I wonder is, and I, this is just, someone might know this, please email me. I'm curious, you know, but like if, if we go and say, okay, well, you know, yeah, your value, your property of your value went up, you know, X amount, but we're actually only going to count it as much. Yeah. I mean, you're still like on the next year. I mean, it still went up even if it stays flat, right, relative yeah. to where the valuation was. So even you could have a situation you can imagine, especially in some of the these high-growth areas where, you know, in some ways the the home values are actually staying flat. The economy is 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 weakening, but actually your property val- pri- taxes are still going up because the value of your home increased so much in the last five years. Right. So there's a bunch of different things going on here that I think are very – I mean, you know, I mean, like yeah. we said this before, but like this is – when you rely so heavily, you know, on a tax base where the tax basis is, you know, something whose value fluctuates over time. Yeah. Highly you, variable. It's highly yeah. variable, right? Yeah. And it's highly variable in a way that's really outside of the control of the Texas legislature in any major way. Right. So also in this budget. Yes. Uh, you know, old reliable, border, as we mentioned a few, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, border security in the budget certainly matches, you know, predictable polling results. We. You know, I, I was thinking last week we talked about the MIP results. We don't really need to re, yeah. re, rehash all that. But, you know, border security and immigration, the, we get the, we get an answer to a question we've been asking here, which, you know, I, I think the, the answer to this was becoming more and more clear. But that, you know, we're not going to see much of an adjustment in border security spending. There's no political rationale for that. Or to the extent that there is a political rationale on, on spending, 
in this session with, on one hand, a bunch of money laying around and the configuration of border security politics. We're not going to see any fighting over this. No, I'll just add one thing. I think the one thing, I think that we've probably passed a certain threshold in the dollar figures now where not only obviously, you know, it was for all the reasons we've talked about, we're not going to see Republican legislators decrease the amount of money that Texas has spent on border security given the importance of Republicans place to it, attitude towards that spending. But now that the number is becoming so absurd, I mean, in some ways, I think actually I've been noticing this in Abbott's, re- Abbott's rhetoric a lot more. Where there's always been this idea of this is a federal responsibility. And I think yeah. when the number was smaller, you know, a lot of the times it was Democrats kind of shaking their fists and we shouldn't be spending this money on border security. This is this is the federal government's job. Like, why are you doing this? As the numbers become gotten so big and has been attached to this sort of perpetual, you know, what's going to be, it's the war on terror. It's a perpetual crisis that there is no, right. there's no solution at the border for, let's say that. Well, then at this point, the number becomes so absurd, it becomes a political prop in and of itself to say, look at how much Texas taxpayers are paying to secure our own border Right. That it's that the federal government is failing at doing, and the number becomes another piece of evidence. And as long as you see, yeah, and as long was, as you see the kind of public opinion numbers on the spending that we're seeing, yeah, you know, particularly among Republicans. But as we've talked about in here, you know, when we ask about border security spending, you know, are we spending too much, too little, the right amount? You know, independents and Republicans are still, you know, saying, you know, either too little or the right amount, which are effectively okay. You know. Yeah, buttress this policy, and you know, importantly, a non-trivial amount of of Democrats fall into that, and so you know, there was there might have been a moment to think about that. But you could see a situation, you know, let's say we hit a recession next time around, you know, and all of a sudden we're making cuts to to public education to others, you know, which we've done in the past, and let's say we're doing that, you know, are we going to see a cut to border security? The answer is probably not. It's going to be a lot harder for all the reasons we point out. But even but then it becomes even more politically valuable. You say, well, yeah, we're in a recession. We're making cuts to you know, transportation, the public education, the hospitals. But you know what? We're, we still have to spend $5 billion at the border every, you know, by yeah. it. And, you know, that's because the federal government's failed. So there's you know, a very—I mean, it almost becomes—it has a self-sustaining quality to it from a political standpoint, even though it's becoming, you know, a serious budgetary consideration. Yeah, and, you know, there was a—you know, and I think, you know, you know, national politics will shape this a little bit, but not, not this session. No, I mean— <laughs> I mean, it, they're shaping it, but, it, you know, that dynamic could be— potentially disturbed by national politics yes. and a Republican president that starts pouring money into the border. But, you know, that's not happening this session. So there's, a, you know, a lot of other stuff is, well, you know, I, I do want to say something that we, we didn't talk about going into this, but there's also this big allotment or the, you know, the, the, the push, which I'm a little bit surprised by to increase uh, public employee and teacher pay. Now, teacher mm. pay, we know, polls very yeah. well has become more complicated, I think, in the context of some of the educational politics of the COVID and post-COVID period or late COVID period, I guess I should responsibly call it. But, you know, I'm going to be interested to see what the public employee piece of that looks like when when the budget moves to the floor. We're we're already beginning to see some little counter moves on the far right, things like, you know, there was legislation introduced recently, I I think, in the House to— you know, limit the pay of any public employee to not more than the governor makes. Now, that's a symbolic, just shot across the bow stuff. But it is an indication that we probably will hear a little bit about that, particularly from the far right of the party when it comes to public pay. You know, there'll be amendments about taxpayer-funded lobbyists. Gonna, yeah, I mean— It'll be a vehicle for a lot of things, but I think 
It's interesting to see that there does seem to be a bit of consensus on the state leadership on that, which, you know, I, I you know, look, I'm not saying state employees don't deserve that or, you know, whatever, but one of those things is an artifact of the moment that I could see in a different circumstance, obviously not playing nearly as straightforwardly as it seems to be pl- playing now. I think the other thing in here that I think is kind of the dog that hasn't barked that we've I think been these talking are, these about. These are related. Because- <laughs> yeah, that is related is, is some of the priorities that are very much in play. And the key one there, I think, is, is infrastructure. And infrastructure is interesting because – you know, I, I think neither the signaling so far, the existing budgets, as I read them anyway, nor the polling tells us a lot about it. I mean, infrastructure is tough practically and politically, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the reality is, is when you're talking about infrastructure in Texas, first of all, you're talking about a huge number, whatever it is, it doesn't dollar figure. It doesn't matter what we're talking about because it's, Texas is so big, it's so spread out, there's so many people. So it doesn't matter you know, what area of infrastructure, there's no small investment in infrastructure in Texas. Right. It's not really possible. The other problem, you know... Yeah, outside of a local, a local project bill... Yeah, right. scaled infrastructure spending, very very expensive. Yeah, I mean, so so practically, you know, you have to put in a lot to, to, to even really do something noticeable. Then, you know, politically, there's two big problems. You know, the time horizon for most infrastructure projects are sort of the best midterm, most likely long-term. You know, so if you're talking about, you know, big, you know, major transportation projects, you're talking about 10-plus years of planning, permitting, et cetera, then construction, then you're ruining people's lives for five years, then you get the benefit a lot of people aren't going to be in politics who are there right now, you know, right. thinking about this. And then, you know, the other thing is is that there's, nobody gets – no politician gets a benefit for not screwing up. So, for example, no one's going to get reelected because the water kept running or the lights stayed on, right? And so, you know, there's not necessarily this, this you know, screaming for action. However, now I just said that. There is a lot of discontent out there, and I think there is, you know, around, again, some of these bigger picture things we talk about, the cost of housing, the cost of living, you know, concerns yeah. that people are expressing. You know, transportation is not getting necessarily better quick enough for the population. The perpetual local, you know, grievances about traffic. Perpetual local grievances about traffic, but also, you know, you're seeing, I mean, if you follow the news regularly, you're seeing multiple instances where, you know, we're in boil water notices in places at very different parts of Texas, so for yeah. very different reasons, or no water at all. There's still concerns about the reliability of the electric grid. And so, you know, well, we can't say that there's specific polling that points to like, oh, you need to do this, because really, I think infrastructure, you know, I think response is really crisis-driven. Yeah. But that discontent is like, it's pretty palpable out there. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, I think you can't underestimate the degree to which the grid failure two years ago was a catalyst for this. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, not in some hugely comprehensive way in that, you know, you know, we ask we ask voters what's the most important problem facing the right. state. And, the, you know, even when we had evidence in more focused questions that people didn't have a lot of confidence, people's confidence in the reliability of the grid had been shaken. Yeah. And they didn't expect the, that the legislature and the leadership had really solved the problem. Right. Even at the height of that, if we said what the mo- what's the most important problem facing the state, the grid didn't no. pop up. And we asked, you know, we pulled right after the the failure, right? And and at even and perpetually after that. But, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, the problem here, you know, it, part of the problem here is that these things tend to take more than one session to develop. Mm-hmm. They generally get lost and overlooked in media coverage. I mean, there are people that, you know, who's kind of boutique specialty, you know, as a function of their beat and their interests is keeping track of this stuff. 
But for the most part, it either gets lost, overlooked, or not, you know, frankly, not presented very well in media coverage mm-hmm. because of that. I mean, following things that develop that are complex systems that develop in the legislature incrementally over time. You know, I mean, look, any anybody in the legislature that's been around will tell you, yeah, you don't do these big things in one session. You know, mm-hmm. you look at, and we've talked about this, what happened in the last, the middle of the last decade when we saw, you know, some steps forward on transportation and, on, and especially on water, you know, that wasn't like, aha, yeah. You know, we you know, we just we walked in, we did this, this was the session. It was the product of a lot of painful negotiation, you know, and failure and moving bills through the process and you know, getting a lot of stakeholders with a lot of influence in the process. And also from a legislative perspective, these things take a lot of expertise, a lot of patience, a lot of time, and they're not very glorious. Yeah. And so, you know, you see somebody like Senator Nichols, who's been the transportation guy for a long time, is chair of transportation again. And we see this in other policy areas, but it's especially so in these big, slow-developing areas. You know, you're not seeing a lot of people going, hey, I wish Senator Nichols would leave so I could be the transportation guy. Right. Right? And so, these, you know, the politics of this are very, are very complicated. That said— you know, as we're sitting here talking about about this, I do think that might have missed a little bit coming, or I might have missed coming into this this idea of the grid failure is a little bit of a catalyst because, and and again, these things also there's political entrepreneurship involved here. You mm-hmm. know, there's other things going on in response to crisis, but you know, we we've, we've seen a lot a lot of stirring and a lot of signal setting on infrastructure this time. Well, you know, in ways that I'm a little, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised of because of the money, because yeah. the money's available. On the other hand, you know, it's not really been an environment that's been particularly focused on long-term issues. Yeah, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, we're talking about this kind of coming in. I mean, even, you know, just to add even to that list, you know, there's a lot of attention in, not a lot of attention, that's a lie. There's very narrowly focused attention, at least in Austin, about, you know, a bill by, uh, Senator Hughes that would relax compatibility requirements basically across Texas. And that'd be a, that'd have a big, big impact for like building in Austin. And, you know, so I, I add that to this. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, sort of looking at polling over time, right? I mean, one of the things is you get the, you know, the advantage of looking back and seeing what you missed, yeah. right? And I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, looking back over the last decade, you know, I think pollsters, myself included, definitely discounted the extent of economic discontent coming out of the last recession into the Great Recession of, you know, 0809, and the extent to which that, you know, that combined with, you know, political attitudes and really, you know, sort of the Tea Party wave was a bit of a surprise. You know, I mean, we knew these meetings were going on and having, but like we didn't know that, you know, that Republicans yeah. were going to have the kind of extent and sweep they did in 2010. Yeah, its and magnitude was— Its magnitude was pretty shocking, yeah. but then a lot of people kind of went back and said, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> all these kind of— these white people over the age of 40 have been really, really, really negative about the direction of the country, yeah. now the economy— and I think you know, it had been easy enough to say, oh, that's just sort of partisan filtering of you know the environment, or whatever. But ultimately, it was consequential when it became consequential. Yeah. And I don't think there's something like that's going to like there's a groundswell here in Texas, but it is notable. And we talked about this on the podcast yeah. before. You know, the duration of you know the the extent and duration to which majorities of Texans are saying the state's on the wrong track, yeah. the extent and duration to, of which you know people keep saying that their own that that 
Texas's economy, not the national economy, which again, gets filtered very much through sort of who's in the White House, but Texas's economy is not as not sort of a standout performer, you know, as what it used to be. It depends on how you ask the question. But ultimately, there's more negative views of Texas economy. We have people their own personal economic situation. You say, you see, yeah. again, this trend of negative attitudes. We ask about inflation, same thing. You look at attitudes on housing. You look at attitudes on transportation. You say, there's an underlying discontent here that, like, I think it's easy to kind of look and say, yeah, you know, this is this is too amorphous because it's not, you or know. Or it's just Democrats. Or it's, but, but, and that's the thing. If it were just Democrats, you'd say, oh, it's just Democrats having sour grapes. Right. But the reality is I think it's not. And we see this in the question we talked about before. You know, we looked at reactions to the state's growth, and they're most negative among Republicans. Yeah. And that may be about something else, but but overall, to the extent that the state is is growing continuously and that, you know, there's this kind of wide, you know, it's an increasingly widespread notion maybe that the state is not responsive to this growth. And this is one of the main December results that I think we got when we asked this question about whether or not state government is responsive, you know, to Texans or not, like yeah. or addresses or ignores the needs of Texans. And over the last five years, we've seen a, a significant shift in Texans' views on whether the state's actually responsive yeah. to Texans' needs. Yeah, an inversion. An actually. inversion, if you will. <laughs> I'm, you know, again— But I, it's an inversion driven, I mean, I think to your point, yeah. it's an inversion driven by— you know, a 20% decrease in the positive ratings in those two items that we talked about right. among Republicans between 2017 and 2022. Yeah. And I think that, look, I mean, I, I think somebody would be fair to object, to yeah. object. well, you know, look, that is just the, you know, you're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. That is the growth of the discontented elements within the Republican Party. But I think that, you know, I mean, as you're talking about that. I have, I have a counterpoint that, to that, though. There's but. a couple of different things that are interesting about that, you know, that the arc of that trajectory. One is which, one of which is you can sort of focus on how we miss the economic discontent. Mm -hmm. If you go back and you kind of look at the some of the academic and, and political discussion of this at the national level and the rise of the Tea Party and Trump and mm -hmm. the general level increase of discontent mm -hmm. with American life and institutions – there's a frequent academic discussion that says, well, how much of this, you know, is this mainly cultural or mainly economic, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, the one thing you, you didn't yeah. mention, although it's embedded in there, is, you know, that Tea Party wave comes not only after the Great Recession, but also after the yeah. election of the first black president. Right. But those things, I mean, I've always thought that it's analytically useful to try to separate those things, but you're not really going to understand, like, the dynamic unless you get the two of those things together to some degree. And we're still seeing that in terms of the, uh, you know, the way that, but I think you're right that the, you know, the economic piece of that, you know, was easy to underestimate or to, or to file away as, you know, subject to partisanship. Sour grapes or, you know, or whatever. Right, any number of things that. Not giving, it's like, oh, you know, Republicans don't want to give, you know, credit to a Democratic president for a recovering economy. Fine. But this is the point. We say, yeah, but that doesn't apply to te Republicans evaluating Texas' economy. Right. Or and their own personal economic situations. And that's, I think, the thing where, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what, I mean, to me, what this infrastructure piece looks like. I mean, to the sense, you know, why why are the teachers, the, or not the teachers, the state employees sort of the one kind of, it's like, you know what, because that's easy in some ways, because the reality is, is that, you know, their, their pay is not keeping up with inflation. There's, it doesn't matter what scandal you read about in what department of government, almost always they, they're talking about vacancies and positions, the difficulty of hiring people. I mean, this is almost just a level setting that needs to happen because ultimately they can build all kinds of new infrastructure. They can build an amazing new, you know, center for, you know, child and protective services. But if nobody works there, it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah. And so there is some basics that they kind of just 
I think, need to do. But but again, this isn't the sort of stuff that's going to be noticed immediately. All of which could carry the day in a rational discussion. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, I think we'll uh, – let's hang it up there. I yeah. mean, I, I think if we're going to kind of, you know, walk away from this, you know, I, th- I think while, you know, everyone including us strives to read tea leaves at this point in the process, you know, we're we're now in a slightly more concrete but still very early stage of where, where we are in the legislature. I mean, I think it leads almost inevitably, particularly among us, these bigger like, yeah, and – but there's all this other bigger stuff going on, right? Yeah, right. You know, uh, and I think, you know, s- some of the key things, you know, that we're wa- are still yet to be determined in terms of where this session falls between 2019 and 21, 2021, a lot of things are still in play. You know, I mean, I think if, you know, what am I watching this week? How much does, you know, or w- you know, what are we still watching? How much does the kind of drumbeat from the GOP far right influence the agenda? I think that's still not quite clear. Oh, yeah, right? I have no idea. And, and, and that's because a lot of their... <laughs> Their influence is likely to – it typically is later in the process, you know, as they can be obstructive or they find moments to profile more. And then how much of this you know, kind of growing background on infrastructure, you know. And, you know, one thing that I just want to kind of highlight from what the discussion we had, this really is still a very broad discussion. And, and that is in part a function of the objective conditions you're talking mm-hmm. about in which the, the the lag between growth and infrastructure in the state, which is kind of undeniable, but also, you know, the presence of all of this money. And I think we should, yes. you know, come back and before, you know, what's something we didn't elaborate too much on, but to, to flag again as a takeaway, that budget did leave a lot of money set aside so that at this point nobody is talking about breaking the spending cap. A lot of these big infrastructural measures and, for that matter, property tax reduction can be addressed in ways that take advantage of safe harbors that are either in the Constitution Mm -hmm. or in statutes that enable you to dedicate funds in a way that are not – that don't fall within the spending cap. Right. So you can have constitutional elections on things. Yeah. There are already created funds for things like property tax reduction, frankly – that you can divert into those funds that don't count against the spending cap or a compli- yeah, you, you know complicate. You can that put argument. it to the voters, right? And that which is the constitutional the easiest piece, way to do it, which is the constitutional piece, right? And so, you know, a lot of that, I think, you know, the, you know, the the, the true strategies have yet to gel here, but I do think that that's an indication of that because, you know, I've been in a few discussions recently where somebody says, "Yeah, the spending cap," and people go, "Well, yeah, but you could just, yeah. you know." <laughs> Just let the voters decide that they're going to give themselves a tax right. cut? Or, or you know, or move it into some of these funds that are already right. statutorily exempt from that and were created for that reason. Right. Right. And so I think those are some of the things. Wait a minute. That kind you of, mean it's not a hard spending cap? Right. You know, fancy that. And yeah. remember, you know, with a super majority, you can vote to break the spending cap. It has been done before. The leadership doesn't love to do it. But there have been moments when if it means— you know, staying for extra time or getting out early, the pressure kind of builds on those votes on the members, both their internal personal pressures and the overall pressure, you know, is there. Yeah. So 
So with that, uh, thanks to Josh for being here today. Thanks again to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio in the College of Liberal Arts here at the University of Texas at Austin. If you're listening to this podcast directly through one of the podcast distributors, you can also go to our website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. We generally have a post where we have some of the contextual data I will almost certainly do that today. So texaspolitics.utexas.edu, go to the blog section. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 